I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll talk Russia sanctions, and we'll talk trade policy and the China competition bills that are coming up in Congress. Finally, we'll talk about the new Buy America guidelines, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, the trade guys are back and the war in Ukraine rages on. Since the beginning of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, there's been debate in D.C. over how effective the sanctions would be and how long they'd take to work if they ever did. So two months in, guys, can you assess how the sanctions have performed so far? Well, they seem to be having an impact. They haven't knocked the Russians out of commission. This morning, I listened to a webinar where a representative from the European Commission said that EU shipments or exports to Russia had declined by 70%. And that was not just sanctioned items. That was total trade is down by 70%. And there is a lot of self-sanctioning going on. People are so appalled by what the Russians are doing that they're electing simply not to do business with them, whether they're required not to or, or not. There is an impact, I think, with all sanctions. The impact is not always immediate. It tends to be cumulative and and show up over time, particularly on the military side. The export control sanctions that have been imposed, which are actually quite broad on getting military items and, and technology with military application to the Russians, that shows up over time, you know, because they have inventory, but their tanks are going to break. Their armored vehicles are going to break. Their missile launchers are going to break. And they're going to run out of parts and they're going to run out of components. But that's not going to happen this week. It takes time. You know, the end result is they're going to be a weaker military and a weaker economy, you know, some years from now. How much of this happens in time to make a difference on the ground in Ukraine is a different story. I mean, I think what we're doing on the ground in Ukraine in terms of supplying military equipment is more important than the sanctions. Putin has made clear that he's not going to be deterred by the sanctions. So obviously, these other steps are critical as well. Putin's even saying, you know, that while all assessments of the Russian economy are bleak, he's painting a rosy picture. Well, he is. And it's misleading in part. He's misleading his own people. And they'll find out, you know, the ruble is after a sharp drop has been holding up, I think, partly because they've there are limits on converting it. And the government, uh, the Russian central bank wants to prop it up. You can put lipstick on the pig only so long, and eventually, I think, ordinary Russians are going to realize their economy is in deep trouble. The first thing you say about sanctions is they have not yet affected Russia's behavior that we're aware of. And so that's, that's got to be the baseline starting point. Second, what we know about sanctions of all sorts is the more comprehensive they are, the more likely they are to be effective. Sanctions on Russia were always going to be less than comprehensive. Not only because there is a split in the U.S. or NATO-led coalition, but the more important part is that the Western Europe part of NATO relies on Russian energy to run their economy. Somewhere between 40 to 70 percent of European member states' energy comes from Russian oil and gas. And they can't cut that off because of the dependence on it. So there are limitations on how well the sanctions work. I think some of the biggest most grandiose claims have turned out to be not true. I heard something about we were going to reduce 
The ruble to rubble. Well, the ruble this morning is trading at 82 to the dollar, which is roughly where it was the week before the invasion, roughly speaking. Right. And this is after the central bank, as Bill pointed out, propped it up, putting lipstick, putting lipstick on the ruble. But they've also increased gold reserves. The thing that I think about the ruble is it's primarily an intra-country currency. It's not widely traded. It's not widely held outside of Russia. And so I don't know anybody who wants to hold Russian rubles. Well, the Russians do. And Russians are conducting commerce in it. And frankly, if you're Russian with assets in the UK, you're in some trouble. But if you're an ordinary Russian buying goods and services in Russia, then you're transacting in rubles. But that's it. It's a currency that is now has become hard to influence because it's principally a domestic currency. Scott makes one important point, although I would disagree a little bit. I think it's clear that if you really want to strike a fatal blow to the Russian economy, you've got to stop buying their oil and gas. That's giving Putin hundreds of millions of dollars daily, given the high price of oil and gas right now. And that keeps the Russian war machine functioning. It's beginning to look like Europe has figured that out and realized that they may be in a no pain, no gain scenario. And if they don't take that step in in some significant ways, the sanctions are not going to force the Russians to alter their behavior. There is some piecemeal progress. I noted the other day, Lithuania, for example, has cut itself off entirely from Russian oil and Russian gas. They installed a floating LNG conversion facility offshore, which now receives LNG from the U.S., from Qatar, and from other locations, and then it's piped onshore. There are other European countries looking at doing the same thing, which will enable them to reduce the flow of Russian gas in their countries. Those things take time, but it's beginning to look as though European countries are realizing that they're going to have to take more serious steps on energy sooner than they want to if they're going to have an impact. It's the rest of the world that we also have to watch in this circumstance. So I would just note that the UN General Assembly has taken two US-sponsored votes condemning Russian action. The first was in late February. The second was in early April. The late February one had 141 members supporting the U.S. position, which is roughly two-thirds of the U.N. General Assembly. And look, this is non-binding. They were watered down. I get the limitations. But just as a measure of support for the U.S. slash NATO position, you had roughly two-thirds of the members, uh, 141 total. On the second vote in early April, it had dropped to 93, all right, which is roughly half. And some of the countries that flipped, there are five countries that are U.S. free trade partners that flipped. Mexico, Singapore, Jordan, Bahrain, Oman. So we got to watch how bigger the coalition is if we expect sanctions to work on a going basis into the future. But as you guys point out, the bottom line is our friends in Europe need to stop buying Russian oil for impact to really, really, truly be felt in Russia. Yes. Right. That would be the one thing that would be, I think, probably decisive. If they did that 100% tomorrow, it would have an impact. They're moving in that direction, but You know, it's going to take a long while to get there, I think. Well, as you guys know, I was just in Spain and every day there was a protest by truckers and by drivers, people who rely on Russian oil because their prices have just skyrocketed. Do you think the Europeans can really bite the bullet? Well, there's no alternative source in the short term. If if you want your house to be warm three years from now, yeah, you could develop alternative sources. If you want it to be warm tomorrow, you're going to buy Russian gas. So that's the bottom line right there. Yes. Well, it's kind of an important, almost existential question for them. Are they going to stand up for sovereignty and freedom or are they not? And, you know, there, there's a 
differences of opinion within Europe about this. The people that have been the victims of Soviet aggression at the time, Poland and the other Eastern European countries, tend to take this threat very seriously, partly because they think of themselves as, you know, they could be next. Countries that are farther away from the front line, Spain being one, I, I think probably have a different attitude about it. But it's it's going to be a difficult situation for them. But it's no pain, no gain. They cannot alter Russian behavior unless they're willing to take a step that's going to involve serious sacrifice in Western Europe. We'll see. Okay, well, we'll be watching that. Shifting gears to China, the China competition legislation is finally headed to conference, and there's no shortage of trade policy differences really to be sorted out here. Guys, what are some of the trade title differences the House and Senate will need to reconcile? There are, I think, Six big ones, most of them in the House bill, probably more than six, but two of them are in both bills, extension of the Generalized System of Preferences Program and extension of the Miscellaneous Tariff Bill Program. Both bills do that. They do it in different ways. The differences are not insignificant, but they're certainly surmountable. They just have to sit down and negotiate out the differences. The other ones are primarily in the House bill. The House renews the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program most of which expired June 30th. That always ends up being more controversial than it ought to be, but in the end, it usually makes it across the finish line. The conservatives object, but they usually end up going along with it if other issues get worked out. In addition, there are a couple areas of of exceptional controversy. The House bill contains a provision on outbound investment review that we've discussed before that would set up a, a review process for U.S. investments in other countries you know, primarily, but not entirely aimed at China. The business community is lobbying against that furiously. I think right now, even the proponents would argue that if they want to salvage it, they're going to have to make some significant changes in it. The biggest objections are breadth, because it encompasses potentially all outbound investments, two, a very cumbersome bureaucratic process, and three, location. The process has been placed in USTR. Uh, Nobody thinks that's a good idea. USTR doesn't want to do it. They don't have the bandwidth to do it. It was put there for jurisdictional reasons that because the Finance Committee in the Senate originally considered the issue and uh, the authors of the bill needed to get it into the Finance Committee for jurisdictional reasons. So they put the thing in USTR. My sense is the proponents are prepared to address those issues, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. The opponents, who are, which are dug in, some of whom are on the conference, I think will simply believe it should be dropped entirely. This is the fourth try. The proponents tried to do this in 2018 with FIRMA, and they failed. They tried to get it into the Senate bill last year and failed. They talked about getting it into the defense bill last year, and they didn't do that. So this is strike four, and we'll see. There are two other ones that are controversial. Congressman Blumenauer, the chairman of the Trade Subcommittee, has a provision on the de minimis requirement. Uh, Scott can go into greater depth on this. Basically, de minimis is the, the rule that says that imports below a certain dollar value don't have to go through normal customs procedures and come in duty-free. It used to be $200. The trade bill in 2015 raised it to $800. That's produced a whole wave of parcels coming in valued at less than $800, which both CBP, the Customs Service, and outside observers feel is, is creating kind of a loophole, not only in our tariff system, but in our import monitoring system, because a lot of things like illicit drugs Opioids have been coming in in smaller packages in order to evade the paperwork requirements. Blumenauer has proposed to eliminate that requirement or reduce it, I forget which, uh, essentially for China. It affects a couple other countries, I think Turkmenistan and 
Uzbekistan, the way he's drafted it. But really, China is encountering a lot of resistance from the mail order people, from the the Amazons and of the world, and for people that you know that use the service who complain that their prices will go up. The process, the process problem with it is it's it's not been vetted. There haven't been hearings. The Senate hasn't thought about it. I think it probably is going to get thrown over the side and. But will re- reappear later on because Blumenauer is not going to give up. And the last one, which I think is more likely to make it, is a bunch of basically anti-dumping and countervailing duty trade law reforms that originated with uh, bipartisan with Senator Brown from Ohio and Senator Portman from Ohio, but ended up in the House bill. Democrat and Republican House member put it in the House bill. Basically, they're designed to deal with circumvention, things that dumpers and subsidizers use to get around the duties that have been imposed on them. And it's designed to deal with what are called serial offenders. So you dump or you benefit from a subsidy. The U.S. catches you and imposes a duty to offset the amount of the dumping or subsidy. And so then you move to another country or you change the name of your company and you start all over again. Bill, you know, I was a serial offender this morning when I poured an extra half cup of Special K into my bowl. That was a serial Uh, offense. But it wasn't Lucky Charms, was it? (laughs) Apparently, if you have Lucky Charms, you get sick. Yeah, it's a a pretty minor offense. That's that's in the range of a traffic ticket, Andrew. You don't have to worry about the customs service. Not penalized 20 yards for illegal use of the cereal. Anyway, that one, I think, may make it across the finish line. There's a good bit of support for that. Partly because it's really aimed at China. Yeah, Bill makes the point in his column this week that it's good news that the Congress is back to a real conference committee and that they are doing the kind of legislative work that needs to be done. I agree with that, but they should have done a little more oversight and uh, investigation on on a couple of these issues beforehand. It is really bad practice to take something as complex and controversial like outbound investment reviews and just try to jam it into a bill that happens to be moving. I think we will regret whatever comes out of that. And I I hope it's killed dead personally, partly because I I think investment reviews, outbound investment reviews are unmanageable, but partly because I think it's a terrible idea because what it will do is cause investment to be domiciled elsewhere. You'll, You'll just have less U.S. investment because the companies will find ways to create Swiss companies or create companies with other domiciles from which to manage their foreign investment. I, I agree with Scott on the merits. For a long time, I thought it was going to be toast for the fourth time. But I've noticed both Secretary Raimondo and Ambassador Tai indicated some support for it. And both of them indicated they would prefer that it be done legislatively rather than administratively, which surprised me a little bit because the conversations I'd had with the administration indicated that the administration was looking at it, but looking at doing it administratively via an executive order. But, you know, if the administration is going to be for it in some form, I think that increases the likelihood it's going to happen. Although I think Scott's exactly right about why it's a bad idea. Why is trade adjustment assistance controversial at all? It traveled as part of a pair. The pair was you give the administration negotiating authority. Congress grants negotiating authority, what used to be called fast track, now trade promotion authority. And in combination with that grant of negotiating authority, you pair the trade adjustment package that helps protect workers who are affected by those trade negotiations. So it's always worked in concert. And frankly, the last time it had very broad business support. So the business community is happy to do it. It's a little annoying because there are lots of reasons plants close. There are lots of reasons to that the business operations change. Highlighting the ones where trade was the culprit is feels like a rod for your own back. 
But having said that, most companies want workers, if they are entitled to the adjustment, to be able to get it. So it, it doesn't have a lot of objections. The problem is there's no grant of negotiating authority. There's no request for new negotiating authority by the administration. So it seems like usually it's paired up in this sack race, three-legged race, and we don't have the pair. Just two legs, I think. Yes. But Scott's being kinder to the business community than I would be, frankly. Scott's less grumpy. Uh, yes. Well, in general, he's less grumpy, that's for sure. <laughs> when I was lobbying on this earlier in the aughts, I thought the business community came very late to the party and was a reluctant supporter of this. And in the end, came on board because they wanted to get the authority, not because they had any inherent sympathy for adjustment assistance. I have to say, I don't think the business record on this over the years has been been stellar. They are on board when it is paired. And Scott's right. The fact that it's not paired is what's producing the, the Congress, particularly amongst Republicans right now. Boo-hoo. That doesn't sound good. Well, life, you know, it's, life on Capitol Hill is, can be like that. So, All right, guys. Finally, this Monday, this week, Biden administration issued new Buy America guidelines for infrastructure projects. What does this guidance change? Aren't we typically buying American for our infrastructure projects anyway? It, it doesn't really change the scope of what's covered. It changes the procedure by which waivers are obtained. And, and waivers are a big business in the Buy America world. I think upwards of well more than 40,000 a year are granted in, in normal times. And one of the things that the Biden administration put in was a process for obtaining waivers, which they're employing now in this new rule that, that came out that you're referring to, Andrew. First of all, transparency. Uh, if waiver requests now are going to be public, so it's not just one agency calling up somebody in OMB and quietly doing it, it's public, which means people can come in and object. They've installed a Buy American office in OMB and put into it a, a person, a very capable person, Celeste Drake, whose background is in organized labor. And I rather, I don't have any data on how she's been doing, but my expectation is that waivers are going to be scrutinized much more closely than they have been in the past. And uh, fewer of them are going to be granted. And I think that'll be the big difference. And it makes a difference. I credit Nadia Borelli at the Canadian Embassy for helping me on this for two years. I literally have been searching for a news story from 2009 about this exact issue. Because in 09, the last time we had a big infrastructure package post-financial recession, it contained a Buy America provision that was very similar to the one that we're talking about right now. And one of the interesting things that happened was immediately uh, efforts to install water sanitation projects, wastewater plants, sewers and water pipes, all of which were an integral part of the stimulus program that time. Those programs all ran aground, no pun intended, because the filters that were needed to make the plants operational were all made in Canada. They were made by General Electric incidentally, an American company. They were made in Canada and there wasn't any domestic production. And that meant that water projects from Kansas to Maine were all delayed as people had to go through a waiver process. What's going to happen this time, in essence, is the same thing. That is, give it two weeks and you're going to start hearing complaints from municipalities and local governments trying to get some project off the ground saying we can't do it because this particular part or this particular part is not made in the United States and we need a waiver. The waivers can be granted. Maybe they will be. Maybe they won't be. So best case is this just slows everything down. 
Worst case is it will stop some projects in, in their tracks. Let me make a narrow point and a broader point. The narrow point is this just confirms my experience that no politician really understands the concept of diminishing returns. And, and that's we are way into diminishing returns when it comes to Buy America. It's a great bumper sticker. It's a questionable policy if you look at what it does to costs and availability, particularly in the context of big infrastructure projects. The broader point is the politics of this, I don't think are going to work out the way the bumper sticker makes people think they're going to work out. And that is because all the polling, polling released by Pew in the last 10 days will tell you the number one issue that voters have is inflation. And so how do you drive up the price of stuff in three easy steps if you're the federal government? Well, first, you arbitrarily close parts of the economy for a public health crisis, and then you pour a bunch of money on it, like $6 trillion, okay? Maybe we could have stopped at four, but that's one way to make everything more expensive, too many dollars chasing too few goods. The second thing you do is you increase regulation on things and make it more difficult to get anything made and to do anything, especially energy, which where regulation has been part of the cost increases. The third thing you can do is make the things the government buys more expensive, which is what Buy America does. So I think the politics, given voter concern with inflation, are not going to work out the way they think they will. And I'm just glad I'm working with you guys and not facing the voters in November. Yeah, I mean, the bumper sticker is, as you point out, Scott, you know, bumper sticker is great. But politically, when you're looking at enormous gas prices, enormous food prices, eight and a half, eight point five percent inflation, the bumper sticker doesn't mean anything. That's that's it. And, you know, we don't have a Paul Volcker who's ready to jack up interest rates to to squeeze out inflation. Got a much more dovish Fed at this point and a much different global situation. Even though even though Jay Powell seems to be carrying around Paul Volcker's book with him everywhere he goes. I hope he we hope he's reading it. I think he I think it's his Bible, but he's not doing what Paul Volcker, of course, did. Yes. Well, wait a minute. We need to be a little fairer to both of them yes. on this. Volcker faced, a, I think, a, at the time, a much more serious situation. And second, Powell's just getting started. I mean, if you're Larry Summers, you probably, and, and what he's saying is sort of too little, too late. Larry may be right about that. So far, he's been righter than the other, than the administration economists. But they are moving. You know, they did an initial uh, rate increase, and I think we're going to see more. The question is, they're moving in the right direction. They're doing the right things. Whether it's far enough, fast enough, we'll have to see. If I were a politician, I'd worry about producer prices, which are going up faster than consumer prices at this point. That what that means is six months from now, consumer prices are going to be where producer prices are today. And that's my re-election environment. You won't win on that platform, Scott. Boy, that's uh, I'm glad I'm glad I'm not on the ballot. Put it that way. <laughs> the trade guys are on the ballot every week with our listeners, so don't forget that. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> thanks. We're we're grateful for them, <laughs> guys. Thanks so much. Great talking to you as always. We'll be back next week at the same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks. Bye bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.